You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Revelation 15. It is good to worship with you all this morning and to see your beautiful faces. One of the worst phrases in a child's world, or at least in my own world as a child, was, we'll deal with that when your father comes home. Now, many families are different, I know that. Perhaps it's a single-parent home or a different culture where there's a matriarch or a patriarch that has the final word. Or perhaps your mom was the primary disciplinarian in your home. In my home, growing up, both parents administered consequences. But my dad was the nuclear option. And my mom, who often listens to these sermons, mom, you will probably agree. Now, when I was just barely a teenager, my parents graciously gifted me a home gym. You remember those home gyms with the rubber bands? Yeah, I had one of those. That's how I got so big. Just kidding. Now, I worked out on it for all of about two minutes and decided that I was as big and strong as my father and unilaterally decided that I was above his authority. And so one day, while my father was away at work, my mom asked me to do a simple chore. I think he was taking out the garbage or something. And I said, no. Well, she wisely paused and stated something like, we'll deal with that when your father comes home. I paid it no mind and went about the rest of my afternoon as if I didn't have a care in the world. Well, you probably know the rest of the story. My dad came home from his long, tedious commute after a hard day providing for us as a family, all things my foolish, selfish, and hard-hearted teenage self did not consider at the time, and he walked in the front door to hear my mom recount the occurrences of the day. Now, from that moment on, I won't get into the details. <laughs> Other than to say, my father made it very clear to me, in an appropriate but world-shaking way, that I was not the authority I was in the wrong. I would need to apologize to my mom and operate within the law of our household. And all I could utter was, yes, sir. <laughs> now, friends, I am so thankful for that moment because it gave me an object lesson in proper fear of appropriate authority. Thank you to my father, who is no longer with us for that moment. But it has also provided a great object lesson for our text this morning. You see, in the time between the moment I proved my rebellious nature... And the moment the consequences were poured out upon me, I thought I was simply getting away with my usurpation of authority because nothing bad was happening in the immediate moment. I was operating in the common grace that I shared with my sisters and the provision of food and shelter and relationship. Little did I know that, as our reading from Romans proclaimed, I was storing up wrath for myself on the day of wrath when judgment would be revealed. Now, the Bible has unmistakable imagery that captures this same idea, but to a far greater and far more eternal degree. It uses a metaphor of a cup or bowls, as we will see this morning, that are being filled up slowly but surely with the wine that comes from the winepress of the judgment of God. We covered this last week. And this wine is slowly but surely dripping into the cup until the moment when it is tipped over and poured out in wrath upon the unrepentant and hard-hearted. This morning, we will see the straightforward truth of the pouring out of God's wrath upon the unrepentant. 
pouring out of God's wrath upon the unrepentant. Now, from chapter 12 on, and especially through last week, we have seen Exodus imagery employed by John the Revelator as he describes the period of time between the two advents or the two appearings of Christ. This period of time is called the inner advent period, or what we might know as the church age. It is the period from Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension through our day and on until he returns to judge the living and the dead. In Peter's words in the sermon at Pentecost, this entire period, this entire church age is known as the last days. Now, what I've been submitting to you throughout Revelation is that it has seemed from chapter 4 onward that we have seen the same view of the church age repeated or recapitulated over and over again, just with growing urgency and weight and with a slightly different viewpoint. This is why things are so often repeated throughout the book. The lines of that recapitulation at times are a bit hazy, but as we get further into the book, they're becoming more and more clear. Take, for example, chapter 12 through our text today. We've been again seeing the church age, but from a vantage point of Exodus imagery. And even the plagues that we will see today and next week, they very much mimic the trumpets that we have already seen. But the big difference is that the trumpets were partial judgments affecting only portions of the earth and portions of the population at any one time. What they symbolize is the ongoing cautionary judgment of God that continually calls mankind to repentance because we exist in the fall. This is where things like natural disasters and disease and natural consequences occur. It's God's cautionary judgment that just simply exists. It is a loving attempt of God to wake mankind up, all of us, to the fact that we are not in unity with our Creator. And as the corkscrew moves forward of that progressive recapitulation, we see the progressive nature of God giving us over to this truth. But the bold judgments are a bit different. The bold judgments that we will cover today, they are complete in nature. Rather than a third of the earth or a third of the sea, they will be poured out on all the earth or all of the sea. They are complete in nature. And so as Revelation gets towards the end of the book, it is linking the past and current events of the church age with the futuristic fulfillment that has yet to occur in Christ's final return and judgment of the nations. God's judgment is coming to a conclusion as it leads up to the consummation of all things. And so let's read our text now in Revelation 15:5 through 16:11, and we will see this idea come to pass. Let's take a look first at 15.1, and then we'll jump into 15.5. It says, in 15.1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that uh, died that was in the sea 
The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Well, the first thing that we see is God's awesome presence in judgment. God's awesome presence in judgment. In verse 1, we were introduced to this new set of seven visions, the seven bowls. We saw there at the end of verse 1, it says, For with these bowls, the wrath of God is finished. John indicates the progressive weightiness of his visions and states that these are the last visions of judgment as a whole, in summary. Because what will happen in chapters 17 through 19 is that there will be a deep dive on the final judgment of Christ over the world and his enemies, symbolized in the last bowl that we will see in chapter 16. And then chapters 20 through 22 are then focused on a set of visions on the consummation of all things on into eternity future. And so this is the last major summary of God's judgments that are occurring, and then we will see it move into consummation. Now after this introduction in verse 1, we're then given what we covered last week in the Exodus or redemption song of God's people before his throne. Verses 2 through 4, the people before his throne cry out in worship because of God's amazing work. John then points our attention to the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven there in verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now some of your Bibles, depending upon what translation you have, may say the temple of the tent of witness or the sanctuary of the tabernacle of witness. These words are used uh, interchangeably. Now, this should ring a bell a bit because the language is meant to continue the Exodus imagery and draw our minds back to the tabernacle that Moses was instructed to build in the wilderness during the wilderness wanderings of Israel in which God largely protected them. That tabernacle on earth was to be a replica temple, an earthly form of the great temple of God's abode, the place where God lives. Now remember, while we think in very literal terms, the Bible is using this language of temple or tabernacle as the place where God and man dwell together. Whenever you see this idea of temple or tabernacle, it's where God and man dwell together. In other words, the Garden of Eden was the first temple, so to speak, on earth. It is the inaugurated vision of an eternal future that reminds us of the Garden of Eden before the fall and points us to the eternal truth that God will once again dwell with his people, as we'll see in the New Jerusalem. Now, all of this imagery in the first line is meant to clearly state that it is from God's presence that he releases his authority of just wrath. Now, this is so important to understand because, friends, our contemporary society wants us to quickly dismiss the idea that a good God 
would be the one administering wrath. You can see this in how parenting has evolved. Good parents don't punish. Good parents don't discipline. Well, friends, that is contrary to biblical wisdom. In our individualistic and postmodern, supposedly enlightened world, we have built humanism to new heights where humans are the pinnacle of goodness and truth above God and his word. Our feelings dictate truth. And so many people try to discard the thought that God is a judge that brings wrath because it does not square with our humanistic beliefs. But the reason that the tent of witness is so key is because this was the same thing that Israel constantly did. They constantly placed themselves above. They elevated themselves above God in their idolatry. But in the tent of meeting that sat in the center of their community was the Ark of the Covenant full of a number of reminders of their rebellious sin against God's authority. It contained the Ten Commandments, which Moses had to remake Because when he came down from receiving them, you remember the story, the people were, in one fell swoop, breaking almost all of them in their orgiastic worship of a false god of Egypt while calling it Yahweh. The ark also contains, secondly, the budding rod of Aaron, reminding the people of the time that they tried to rebel against God's chosen and appointed representatives, Moses and Aaron, and instead wanted to become their own individualistic authority. And lastly, the ark contained the golden jar of manna to remind them that God was their beneficent provider, and yet they thought they deserved more. They deserved better and rebelled against God in his provision. And all of this, friends, was contained in a golden ark that was a reminder of the fact that time and time again they had been unfaithful to their covenant with God, and yet God had remained faithful to them. This is what sat at the center of the tent of witness the tabernacle of witness in the midst of the Israelite people. And this was to be the point here in Revelation as well. This idea that the tent, the sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened, it's to remind us in our humanism that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one deserves God's mercy for all are in original sin and have a heart stance of rebellion against our creator. We are conceived in sin born in sin, and live in sin. And it is only the gracious and merciful act of God that can reach down and exchange our hearts of rebellion for hearts of submission, if even only partially in this life. And so John is pointing out that God's judgment upon the whole world is just because the whole world and every individual in it through all time and space is worthy and deserving of God's eternal wrath. And friend, for you to understand the gospel, you must start with this truth. For if you do not believe this truth that the Bible clearly proclaims, you will always wrestle with why we need the cross at all. But this truth of sinful rebellion of all mankind, it is what necessitates the gracious, merciful cross of Christ, where he died in your place and mine. Amen? Well, we see this just authority is released in this vision using God's angelic messengers. The temple is opened. The reminder of God's holiness and our rebellion is there. And out of the sanctuary come the seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gives to the seven angels seven uh, golden bowls, excuse me, full of the wrath of God 
who lives forever and ever. We see this just authority released using these angelic messengers and representatives to carry out his perfect will and perfectly just judgment. The perfection is noted clearly in the use of the symbolic number seven. We see that these are his representatives because of their clothing. They are wearing the same bright linen and golden sashes that we saw in chapter one, verse 13, that Jesus himself was wearing. In their activity, they are representing the lamb who is seated on the throne in chapter four. And these seven angels are given seven golden bowls. These bowls are reminiscent of the vessels used within the tabernacle to provide and pour out drink offerings to God. It's a sign of thanksgiving to God for his provision. But here they are used for a different action. They are full of the wrath of God. And to fully understand what this means, we must connect them to previous imagery woven together so beautifully throughout Revelation so far. First, we can think of imagery from last week in which the holy and just wrath of God is pictured as a wine press. That wine that depicts the sinfulness of mankind drips into these vessels, these bowls, so to speak. And when it reaches its tipping point, that is when God's complete judgment will come upon creation. Second, we can think about the imagery of the bowls used elsewhere. Uh, back in Revelation 5.8, we were first introduced to something similar. In 5.8, it says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, you might say here there's something different that's in the bowls. That is true. But these prayers, as we saw in imagery from chapters 6 and 8 and 11, are from God's people who are acting as witnesses, as if in a courtroom setting, who can testify to the sinful heart of mankind. And so the imagery can be both. It can be the prayers of the saints and also the sin of mankind woven together. These saints are those who have come bearing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and enthronement as king to the world, and what they've received in return is dismissal, persecution, and martyrdom. So again, their prayers and the sin are one and the same, in a sense. Through the true church spread across time and space, God has graciously and mercifully called out to mankind and said, Repent. And mankind's practical response has been rebellion. And so as those who are Christ's have cried out, How long, O Lord? God has responded and said, Just until the sin of mankind is complete until that moment where the bowls are tipped out. And this imagery is used throughout the New Testament. It was seen in our reading from Romans 2. It's up on the screen there. The first five verses say this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." John used similar imagery in this idea of figuring out the timing of when God's judgment would come. He uses this in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened this, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What is their witness? That the world should be called to repentance, that the world is in sin. 
and that Jesus has come to save us. That's the witness. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so we know that part of that sin that is storing up wrath is the murder, the dismissal, the martyrdom, the persecution of the saints. And God has a perfect plan. He knows at what point that will be complete. God is not crudely waiting here as if for a count of corpses. This is imagery that God is waiting patiently for mankind to fill the cup of wrath with their sin so that it can be poured out. Friends, we know what this is like in any position of authority, whether it be parents or police officers, teachers, coaches, you name it. The authority figure, if healthy and doing their role well, will graciously allow some foolishness. But when it reaches a point, it will be summarily dealt with. But we as humans are not perfect in drawing that line. We often err. But God is perfect in his sovereign rule over his creation, and that line is beyond our understanding or comprehension. Turn with me really quickly in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 9. I was reminded of this this morning by a good sister in Christ, and it fits perfectly within our sermon, so I figured I'd mention it. Romans 9, starting in verse 22, captures this idea perfectly. I don't have a slide for it. Romans 9, 22. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, friends, God has a perfect timing and a perfect plan. And he is doing that work, and that work is symbolized in John's, John's uh, visions here in Revelation 15 and 16. And that line is beyond our understanding or comprehension, but that's why right before that verse I just read you in Romans, Paul says, who are you, O man? Just because you don't understand doesn't mean it's not happening. Well, when God finally issues the command for judgment back in Revelation, like those authority figures, it will not mean that he shies away from the confrontation. It means that he will come forth in such strong presence that all of creation will flee Friends, this is the imagery the Bible uses over and over again, that even the stars and the sun, the universe itself, will flee from his presence. If that doesn't send a shiver down your spine, I don't know what will. Just like me, as a know-it-all teenager, believing that I had more power than my father, how much more exponential is it for us Foolish is it for us to stand before the creator of the universe from which all the cosmos will flee and say, I know better. Whew. John captures this truth through the imagery of the sanctuary or temple of God's presence being filled with the smoke of the glory of God and his power, this idea that he will be present in his wrath. This symbolism is pulled directly from the throne room scenes of Isaiah and Ezekiel as well as the dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple. It says there in Revelation 15, it says the sanctuary, verse 8, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary 
until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is continuing that Exodus imagery. It pulls from Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and the dedication of Solomon's temple as well, but primarily from the Exodus imagery. It comes from the last section of Exodus in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There, it was meant as a reminder that God was with Israel in covenant faithfulness in his presence. John calls on this same imagery in Revelation to speak to the fact that God's awesome presence in just judgment will be complete to deal with the covenant faithfulness of all mankind. You see, friends, hell is a place that is away from the presence of God, and yet the presence of God is fully there in wrath. And John describes this judgment with further Exodus imagery as we continue in the plagues. As next we see, the stored-up wrath tipped over in pestilential judgment. And if you don't know what pestilential means, it's just an adjective of pestilence or plagues. Pestilential judgment. This section is relatively straightforward. Verses 1 through 7 that we read... You have the voice from the temple in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And this contributes to the idea that Jesus promoted when he said that the angels in heaven and the Son of God in earthly form do not have knowledge of when the end will come, but only the Father in heaven. This voice coming from the temple is the ancient of days himself commanding that it is time for the judgment to be poured out. The bowls are then poured out in successive fashion, broken up with statements of praise scattered throughout. We see the first plague poured out upon the earth. Look at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. This pestilence is meant for all those who bear, not the sealed mark of the lamb, but the mark of the beast. Those who have given over their lives Instead, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the redemptive work of Christ are protected from this plague. But those who have remained committed, even passively, to the counterfeit trinity of the beast that we covered in chapter 13, they are the ones that are afflicted. Now, this is parallel to Exodus chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, the plague that's seen in that section. In that section, Moses takes soot from the kiln, stands before Pharaoh, throws it in the air, and it becomes boils and sores on man and beast. And it says there in Exodus 9, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Notice the hardening of Pharaoh's heart there, for it reflects the heart the heart stance, if you will, of those who are being afflicted by the judgments here in Revelation. You see, when met with authority, when met with conviction, our hearts will either immediately repent and fall on our knees in submission, or they will harden further. Friends, you can never walk away from conviction. You can never walk away from correction with a neutral heart stance. You will either submit or you will grow hardened in your, in your rebellion. Ask me how I know. The Lord has been gracious to show me many times that unfortunately my heart stance has been rebellion and he's been gracious to bring me back to repentance. 
Well, second and third, we see the bowls of wrathful plague poured out over both the saltwater sea and the freshwater rivers and springs. Look at verses 3 and 4. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The salt water becomes congealed and rotting like the blood of a corpse. It becomes so poisonous in the vision that it kills all living things in the sea. And the other water becomes blood as well and is therefore undrinkable. And these are clearly parallel to the plague in Exodus 7. Up on the screen, you see it there in verses 20 through 23. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Notice again, Pharaoh's hardening, this time of his own heart here as well. At the conclusion of this third bowl judgment being poured out, there breaks in two voices in our text in Revelation, two voices of praise. One is coming from the angelic being to whom the one true God delegated authority over the waters. Now, it is interesting that this is the being noted here. Take a look. It says there in verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Now, if anyone would be a bit upset about their area of responsibility being turned upside down, it would be this angel, right? Uh, Lord, come on, you gave me that as a responsibility, and now you're just wiping the whole thing out? What are you doing? No, his response is praise. And look at verse 6. His reasoning for the praise, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Notice the very first thing attributed to God in the middle of verse 5. It's justice. Just are you, O holy one. And that his activities, even his wrath, is just. He is holy because he has brought these judgments upon the repentant. Now, friends, If there's even an ounce of us that thinks when we read this that God is unjust for bringing these judgments, we have to admit that we have minimized sin, elevated the sinners, and dismissed a holy God. The Bible is not incorrect. We are, if that is our heart stance. And notice the reasoning that he's just. The unrepentant have harmed the very ambassadors that were sent to declare the mercy and grace of God. God, forgive me for the times that you have sent me mercy through another brother or sister to correct me, and rather than correction, I stand in justification and defense. As far back as the murder of Abel, the unrepentant have hated those who bring them knowledge of their own sin and depravity. Knowledge of their need to repent and submit to Christ and his rule. You might think, what about Cain and Abel? Abel didn't do anything. Well, he just merely worshipped well. And simple, that simple example caused such anger in his brother that his brother wanted to kill him. The Israelites proved this as well through the murder of the prophets, culminating in the murder of the ultimate prophet, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Friends, it's interesting as you go back through church history, the church does this as well. well. 
when amazing fathers in the faith existed in their time, people would throw things at them whenever they preached. And then they die, and all of a sudden, everybody goes, oh, that holy person of God. The Israelites proved this in their murder of the prophets. And it culminated in the murder of the ultimate prophet, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. But God's heart is to cry out in compassionate plea for mankind to repent. Even at that, he still cries out for mankind to repent. This was his heart as he looked upon Jerusalem, the place he knew he was going to be murdered. Look at what he says in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. By our first father's rebellion, we have been entombed and enslaved to deceptive sin, unable to turn to God out of our insane thirst for lordship of our own lives. And God has called and called and called, and we have rejected him at every turn. This is the testimony to our rebellion and testimony to his compassion. It's testimony to our guilt and the righteous and just need for his wrath upon mankind, for it is what, as John shows in the vision, it is what mankind deserves. And then we hear a second voice, the voice of the altar. Look at verse 7. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. John is using this shorthand to recall for readers what he envisioned in chapter 6 and chapter 8 as he described the altar of incense before the throne of God being filled up with incense and poured out in fire that symbolized his wrath, the incense being the prayers of the saints. And so this voice is the collective voice of the martyred saints through all time and space. And what do they say? Look at what they say. True and just are your judgments. Friends, this is true for all mankind, including you and I. We did not deserve special dispensation away from God's wrath. But instead, while we were yet embedded in this rebellion and guilt, Christ died for us. He died in our place, atoning for our sin of rebellion. And not only that, he paved a path to resurrection that proves there is the ability to conquer sin and death in that resurrection. And God then poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we would be enlivened once again to submit to and serve him. And we have now been adopted into his church as evidenced in our baptism to new birth and participation in his fellowship. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have been commissioned with this good news simply because we did not deserve it. We have been commissioned to take this gospel to the world, beginning right here on the Lord's day in our preaching and collective witness through communion and fellowship and praise, and then reaching to the farthest ends of the earth. And one day Jesus will return to rescue once and for all those he has adopted and bring righteous judgment against all those who scorned his invitation. And this, dear friends, would have been every human had he not mercifully intervened in salvation. This truth would have resonated with the original audience of this book, and it still does for most of the world's Christians that are under daily threat of persecution or martyrdom. For it declares that God is not deaf to the cries and lament of his people when he sees them in pain. 
He does not turn an unfeeling shoulder to our bids for his attention or our calls for help. He is simply patient, giving mankind time to prove its guilt, giving time for those whom he has saved to turn to him in faith, and at the proper time, he will bring it all to a just completion. Friends, we may not fully comprehend or understand God's wrath, but there is no doubt that the Bible is clear that all mankind will echo this same truth. For even those under the deceptive bondage of Satan's lies and the lies of their own justification will one day see with open eyes the gracious God that they have rejected and the loving invitation he has offered. And they too will cry out in eternal mourning, true and just are your judgments, for this is what I deserve. For the word is clear that every knee, even those attached to rebellious hearts, will one day bow to Christ. How much more, then, the cry of thanksgiving and praise in heaven, the same that we practice here on earth in proclaiming God's goodness to save us in spite of our sin. For we too, who are his, will cry out, True and just are your judgments, for that same damnation is what I deserve. And yet you, in your infinite and indescribable mercy, have saved a sinner like me. And you have saved a remnant of men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so that your creation might rightfully praise you for all eternity. Every one of us, Lord, is undeserving of your grace. And yet you have mercy. God, forgive us sinners. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you proclaim this? Dear friends, I pray that you believe this. And I pray that you proclaim this. For without the truth that every human being is deserving of God's just wrath, there is no need for the gospel of the cross and the gospel of resurrection. And to believe anything other than the need of the cross to address the problems of our sinful guilt and to not submit to God and his rule in any way is to harden our hearts further and stand in unrepentance. And we see this as John continues with the deception of a hardened heart and a cursing tongue. The deception of a hardened heart and a cursing tongue. Take a look at verses 8 through 11 as I clean myself up here. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. 
John continues the pouring out of the pestilential bowls of wrath here, but there is an additional factor in that he starts to note that the recipients of this judgment become even more emboldened in their rebellion and even more hardened in their hearts. Friends, we see this as we look all around. Our world is emboldened in its evil. People rejoice in its evil. The fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun and its heat scorches people with fire. Now this could be parallel to the fire and the plagues of Exodus 9.23 as the hail came down with fire. Fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. But remember the outcome of these plagues like the plagues themselves are figurative. If you keep checking the news to see when these things literally happen, you're probably not going to see them because it's figurative language. That's the whole point of apocalyptic genre. But the more important item here is that this is God's judgment and their response to that judgment, their response to a judgment that is calling them to wake up is to curse his name and stand in bold rebellion. And interestingly enough, the plague represented here shows this same response in the character of Pharaoh. For it seems in this plague in Exodus 9 that there is some repentance Look at what Pharaoh's comments are. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. How many pastors have witnessed this as the person cries out on a Sunday morning, Oh, I'm such a sinner. I need Jesus. But friends, time and truth are friends, even after years sometimes. People show in their early life that they are serious about Jesus, but then time and truth are friends and show the true state of someone's heart. And so then what happens with Pharaoh is Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Who hardened his heart? He did. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. John is pointing out in Revelation that rather than do what makes sense and repent and submit to the Creator God, humanity hardens their hearts further by justifying their opposition to God and His people. And they then follow in the image of the beast, fulfilling their mark, and they curse the name of God. The fifth angel then pours out the fifth bowl, and this judgment is not upon creation per se, but upon the authority of the throne of the beast. And so spiritual darkness falls upon all these, all those under His dominion. But rather than use their God-given tongues to repent and give God glory, they practice self-destruction and curse God for the anguish and pain they have given themselves over to. They would rather chew their tongues to oblivion than utter praise to God. How hard does your heart have to be to be in that state? They harden their hearts even further. And this last plague that we looked at, uh, the fifth plague, there will be two more that we cover next week. This fifth plague... This fifth bowl is parallel to the plague of Exodus 10, 22 through 24. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from this place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Now notice that Pharaoh, rather than fully repenting and giving up control, tries to retain sovereignty and rule. But Moses, in the story, pushes back and says, that is not what God has asked of us. Let us go fully. 
Well, look at the result. Exodus 10, 27 through 28. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, or on the day you see my face, you shall die. Isn't this ironic that the very person that was bringing Pharaoh the truth of God's will and word is the one Pharaoh pushes away? Just as the very people bringing the world the truth of the gospel are the ones that the world pushes away. And in so doing, what is the natural outcome? By separating from the source of God's truth, Pharaoh is actively working to harden his heart. Because that is the natural trajectory of a heart that does not give room for God's word to penetrate it. And just as Pharaoh would reap his own destruction, so will Satan and all who bear his mark. Cursing God and hardening and lack of repentance and rebellion. This is the state of those upon whom God will bring judgment at the end of days. And in the time between now and then, it is a matter of asking, which direction is my heart going? Friends, ask that right now. Which direction is my heart going? Is it in the direction of more humility and repentance or of more rebellion? Years ago, there was a brother who was committing adultery in our church, and I remember the last Sunday he came because I have his image emblazoned in my mind. He looked right at me and sat there the whole time, shaking his head. Is this the stance of your heart, or is it a stance of humble repentance? Our earlier reading from Romans put it this way in Romans 2, 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Brothers and sisters, our text this morning is sobering in its message. God is present in just judgment that should call all mankind to repentance, but because of original sin, it instead simply serves to testify to our blatant rebellion. And that sinful rebellion is being stored up until it is poured out one day in the fullness of God's wrath. And if we do not respond to God's call of repentance, our hearts will harden and we will find ourselves cursing God. Hopefully you've heard my tone is one of sadness more so than the prophetic voice I think, quite honestly, this passage needs because it has first broken my heart about my own rebellion. And it's broken my heart for rebellion that happens in this church. The content is heavy enough. It doesn't need any yelling. <laughs> Now, for the first audience of this writing, and even for us, there is hope and endurance in the repetitive message of revelation that God hears our prayers of lament, our prayers and cries for justice. He sees the injustice against his people, and he will come again to bring justice. We need to take solace in this fact and rejoice because of it. Amen? This is the constant theme and the constant message of revelation, for sure. 
But I think there's an additional message of application for us. The sobering truth of this passage should cause us to wonder, what does it look like to fall into a trajectory of life in which my heart is hardened against God so that I end up cursing him without even noticing? The systematic theologian with this passage will say, well, God preserves his saints in the faith, and that is true. But the foolish Christian and the foolish theologian would then take that as license to not live in fear of God and work that out practically. For it is the practical nature of asking this question, what does it look like for a heart to continue in that trajectory of hardening? It's in the nature of asking this question and operating within that here and now of our own decision That is the mode, the very mode for how God brings forth either salvation or judgment in our lives. And so it is wise for us, even those of us who are elect, who are guaranteed salvation, who are given the down payment of the Holy Spirit, it is wise for us to ask, how can I sprint in the other direction from being hardened against God's merciful judgment that calls me to repentance? How can I sprint in the other direction? Our text in Revelation and its background in Exodus gives us this application. First, and you can write this down, first we must start with a humble heart. We must start with a humble heart. Now this is the application of the first section we covered. For we, like Israel, have broken all of God's law. We, like Israel, have wanted to usurp the authority of Christ as God's perfect representative and intercessor, and we have even done so in fighting against the authority of those God has put in our life, like our brothers and sisters in Christ, like our elders, like our spouses, like our parents. And we, like Israel, have cursed God in the belief that we deserve more than he has graciously given us. How many times this week, dear brothers and sisters, And I can ask you as one amongst you, how many times have we in our heart of hearts said, God, I deserve more. How dare you give me this spouse, this job, this house, not enough material possessions. We say we deserve more stuff, better stuff, a better spouse, a better family, a better church, and on and on the list goes. How many people leave churches that they're committed to because they believe they deserve a better church? In all these ways, we daily need to remind ourselves that our neutral heart stance is not neutral at all, but sinful beyond recognition. And we need to own that. That is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves every morning. We must start with a humble heart. Can you imagine how many marriages would be instantaneously sanctified if both spouses stopped cursing God for the spouse that they had and instead giving thanks? Thank you for this person that sanctifies me daily. Well, second, we need to repent quickly. The progressive pouring out of wrath and the parallel connection to the plagues of the Exodus and the progression of Pharaoh show us the horrific damage that we do to ourselves when we refuse to lay down our justification and defensiveness for ourselves, when we refuse to listen, refuse to hear, and refuse to humble ourselves before the one that is bringing correction to us. Now, whether that be another individual or the very word of God being preached or read in the mornings or the conviction of the Spirit based upon the word of God, we should be in a heart stance 
constantly poised to sprint to repentance. Third, we need to recognize the simple symptoms of a heart that is justifying itself. Here are a few symptoms. See if any of these land. We find ourselves apathetic to God's word, both written and preached. We find ourselves yawning more than being convicted. We find ourselves regularly separated and isolated from God's people by our own choice. And then we justify that fact by coming up with what we think are reasonable explanations, but at core are simply excuses for avoiding conviction. We then develop fleshly attitudes such as bitterness and anger and resentment and a coldness to those Christ has placed in our lives to be his messengers. And lastly, we know deep down that we are in pain. And yet we gloss over it, justifying the pain as some form of martyrdom against an unjust God who has not loved us well in our circumstances. Friends, when these are all present together, or we see them developing, we must recognize that these are the very sores, the very boils to which our text is figuratively pointing. My beloved brothers and sisters, we are so blind to these symptoms in our own lives, and when we see men and women who are choosing to harden their hearts rather than lay down their pride and repent, it should not elevate us to self-righteous pride. Rather, it should humble us to the core and cause us to sprint into the open arms of Christ. His word is clear that if not for his power, if not for his might, if not for his intervention in our lives through his church, through his word, through his gospel, if not for these graces, our hearts would naturally grow more rebellious and more hardened than any of the recipients of these bowls. Praise God that he has held off in giving us all that we do actually deserve And praise God for his merciful message of the gospel that convicts us and calls us to repentance and humility. Brothers and sisters, as we close the ministry of the word this morning and participate together in the ordinance of communion that Christ has given us, please begin by joining me in a collective prayer. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, please bring us your mercy by breaking our hearts of our stubborn rebellion and our unwillingness to hear conviction from those near to us. Father, please forgive us for our pride. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. Please let your word do its work in our hearts this morning by revealing to each of us our participation in the sin of our ancestor Adam so that we might instead pursue participation in the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, let our hearts of flesh and rebellion be crucified this morning. And let us resurrect in newness of life, even in these broken vessels that will continue sinning in some capacity. But let us be enlivened to your spirit this morning so we can hear your conviction more clearly so that we might walk as those witnesses proclaiming your goodness and your gospel grace to a world that is in dire need of it. Lord, help us to understand all of this today in your spirit. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that made all of this possible, we pray. Amen.